This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, we talk with director Derek Wayne Johnson on his new documentary, John G. Avilton, King of the Underdogs, which is now available to rent or buy on iTunes, Amazon, and other video-on-demand platforms, as well as available on DVD and Blu-ray, chronicling the life and career of the Oscar-winning director of Rocky and the Karate Kid, John G. Avilton, King of the Underdogs, gives a never-before-seen look inside John G. Avilton's innovative cinematic skill through never-before-seen interviews with Sylvester Stallone, Ralph Macchio, Burt Reynolds, Jerry Weintraub, Talia Shire, Carl Weathers, and Oscar-winning director Martin Scorsese. Director Derek Wayne Johnson shares with us how the three-year process began of making this documentary and how he struck a friendship with John G. Avilton, which lasted until his death in June 2017. Derek also shares why John G. Avilton's films have had a cultural impact and how some of his lesser-known films, such as Save the Tiger, which won Jack Lemmon his only Best Actor Oscar, now have the opportunity to be rediscovered. And we'll also learn about some surprising archival material from home movies of John G. Avilton, which Derek was able to use in the film. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Jog Road, Instagram at Jog Road Productions. You can like our Facebook page, Jog Road Productions. And don't forget to subscribe to Jog Road Productions on YouTube to see some of our video interviews featuring Don Cheadle, Hewan McGregor, Greta Gerwig, and many more. You can subscribe to the Road to Cinema podcast on iTunes, and please leave us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join director Derek Wayne Johnson as we discuss his transition from being an actor to a filmmaker, as well as his new documentary, John G. Avildsen, King of the Underdogs, which is now available to rent or buy on iTunes, Amazon, and other video-on-demand platforms, as well as to purchase on DVD and Blu-ray. You can find links and more information within the description section and show notes of our podcast. Well, I was, yeah, I used to be an actor, and, uh, that was fun. And then you realize, nah, you're a filmmaker, you know? Um, you don't see directors becoming actors, you see actors becoming directors. And so I was, I had just given up acting, but I had always been making films, and obviously John was a huge influence and a hero. Um, so about five years ago, I had made a couple feature films, and I was about to direct uh, a horror film called Scrape, which you probably never heard of. And I was, uh, I was like on YouTube and I was just looking up interviews of directors because I was about to film like a week from then and I'd always get inspiration from other directors. I listen to commentaries, I do the whole thing like filmmakers do. And I stumbled across uh, an interview of John Avildsen who has always been my hero, Rocky and the Karate Kid, my favorite films. And, and I've just studied him, you know. And uh, I'm watching this interview gearing up to shoot my film and then I realized this is his personal page and so I click on it and I'm like oh my gosh this is actually John Ableton on YouTube so I sent him a message and uh, he messaged me back and we just started this friendship and I told him I'm about to go into another film and he gave me some pointers and you know he was just like really awesome and really cool and I uh I made that film, and while I was filming that, that movie, John calls me, like, on the way to set, and we talked for, like, three hours. I oh. actually, like, held up set so I could <laughs> talk to John Avildsen. It was really crazy. 
He was giving you advice about making the film and... Well, that and also he called to rip apart my script that I sent him, um, which he uh, turned down, but um, you may remember this story. He, I was like, hey, you know, like, I, I want to work with you, and I sent him a script. Actually, I was like, you know, what so can this I... this was a script for him to direct. For him to direct, yeah, because yeah. it's like, I, I really want to work with you, and I have, you know, a, a lot of scripts and stuff, and he was like, ah, okay, look... Send me the script. Send me a check for a thousand dollars. All right. If I like the movie, I'll do it. If I don't, I promise you, for a thousand dollars, I will script doctor your script, every page. Is that a deal? I was like, oh, yeah. All right. So you know, like, wrote a check for a thousand dollars and sent that along with the script. And two and a half weeks later, I get this call from him as I'm headed to set, and he's like, Derek, get a pen and paper ready. Your script sucks. Let's talk about it. But you know, I think yeah. you're on to something. And, and, and then from there, like I finished that movie and I kind of, uh, told him, you know, if you're not going to work with me, like on a movie, like what if I make a movie about you? And that's when he was like, let's do it. So it was just like this whole thing. Like I was like an actor and a filmmaker. Then I gave up acting and then I was just focusing on filmmaking, doing narratives. And then all of a sudden for the last several years, I've been the documentary guy. And it's all because of John Alton. Uh, jumping into a documentary, did you have any idea sort of the the, the long gestation process of making it and, and all the, uh, the the difference between sort of making a narrative and a documentary in a sense? Was that was there a learning curve there at all? I would say there's a huge learning curve because I come from narrative where it's, you know, you write the script, you get it funded, you shoot it, you edit it, you get it out there, done. Documentary is like one long like investigative journalist like I don't know adventure it's it's completely different and no one can say it is you're, I mean you're both you're telling a story no matter what it's just a different medium but it, it being my first long form documentary it was um, it's quite an experience I mean we worked on it literally for three years I've known John for five years but personally but the, the documentary itself has been the last three years of my life Whereas, you know, a narrative, you can have it done in six, nine months, a yeah. year. You shoot it for a month, you edit, yeah. you sell it, and then you're done. Yeah, you could do two of those a year, you know. But here I'm sure there was like a, a huge pre-production process where you were digging into research like you were a journalist. Was that a big part of it before you even started filming interviews and putting the film together? Absolutely. I mean, the whole, the, the research aspect was immense and I had an edge because I knew a lot of John and I knew his movies in and out. But what was really cool about John is, um, it, about a year into production, I finally presented a rough cut to him, you know, just a first assembly. And that's when I won him over really, truly. He loved it. He laughed, he cried. He was just so overwhelmed by what he was watching that that's when he opened up his vault. That's when he really let me in with, he, he gave me home movies that had never been seen before, photos that had never been seen. I mean, he really was like, okay, you're taking this seriously. You know what you're doing. Now I'm going to jump in and give you the good stuff. And he did for the next two years. Wow. So what did you find in some of that archive material that he had uh, at his disposal? Oh, man. Well, a lot of us have seen, like, the Rocky behind-the-scenes stuff that are on, like, the Rocky DVDs. Um, so that's not new. Um, even the Karate Kid footage, some of that is on YouTube. 
Um, but I, I, I stumbled across things of like, you know, Jack Lemon footage that had never been seen before from Save the Tiger, Peter Boyle from Joe, um, you know, just these home movies that no one had ever seen before. I mean, auditions from celebrities like Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger, footage from the 60s of Warren Beatty, just all this stuff that John filmed. I mean, he always had a camera in his hand, always. And uh, so he sort of documented his life in a his way, life. both on set and off, and just whenever he was around, he had a camera at his disposal. Absolutely. Up until he passed away, he had an iPhone in his hand, uh, you know, c constantly filming. I mean, he just has hard drive after hard drive and reel after reel and tape after tape of footage. And I got to play with all of it. It was crazy. So just for the audience to know, I mean, John Avildsen, his impact on film, I mean, Rocky, The Karate Kid, you know, I mean, these were iconic films. I mean, was that, uh, these had an impact on you as a filmmaker when you were growing up? Absolutely. Uh, my two favorite films are Rocky and The Karate Kid. Like, I can't separate the two. Like, they're literally tied for first because they both, as a child, they spoke to me in certain ways and they still do. Um, I mean, I literally was a student of these films. I remember at an early, early age noticing this weird name, John G. Avildsen, going, who is that? And why did he make my favorite movies? I need to know who this guy is. I'm talking like as a 10-year-old, I, I was aware of him. And I just grew up in studying these movies and loving them and watching them. And, and I, you know, it kind of felt right to do this documentary. I felt like I was the man for the job um, and I knew that I had, you know, had to an answer to the fans and I had to an answer to film critics and to John himself. I knew I had a task ahead of me, but growing up, these films were the films that I absorbed and still do. And I mean, he changed the world with these films. I mean, look at Rocky, the montage sequence that's been copied tenfold. Um, everybody knows, you know, him raising his arms. Uh, above his head uh, on uh, running up the rocky steps. I mean the steady cam was introduced from Garrett Brown um, Just everything in Rocky. It's just been copied time and time again. You look at the karate kid. Everyone knows the crane kick um, Everybody wishes they had a mr. Miyagi in their life. I mean John really made impressive lasting films in the likes of Spielberg and Lucas and Coppola and Scorsese He just didn't his just name didn't pop as, as well um, and, he, and he took a lot of credit for that as well he said it was kind of his fault he didn't he didn't spend money on a publicist <laughs> yeah it's interesting because he, he won the Oscar for Rocky and you know I think he his follow-up was gonna be Saturday Night Fever is that right yeah he uh, he you know you'll find out in the documentary he was the original director of Saturday Night Fever He's actually responsible for the, the lit floor in the disco. Like, that was John's idea. Had he shot any footage before he left the project? Or? He hadn't shot any footage. He got fired about two weeks before. Oh. And they brought in John, John Batum, who did an amazing job. But all of the pre-production, all of that really, and not to, you know, not to discredit John Batum at all, but that was all John Avildsen. And uh, you'll see in the documentary, he talks a little bit about that. And uh, we have some never-before-seen rehearsal footage from that as well that wow. John shot. So you mentioned, you know, John really didn't become part of the process until after he had seen that assembly. So, you know, what was it like sort of making this film and, you know, putting these interviews together and trying to get everybody involved before John really had a, a solid impact on the project? 
Well, John, straight up, he said, look, this is your film. And, um, you know, we asked him, we said, are you willing to help with getting any of these interviews? I mean, making calls and stuff. And he goes, no. <laughs> and we're like, okay. And he said, this is your project. If you really want to do this, do it. But I will promise you, if you come to, you know, if you're getting stonewalled, I will, do, you know, think about putting in the call. Because there's a lot of pride as well, you know. You don't want to call people to be like, hey, will you be in this movie about me? So we did all of the interviews ourselves. We made all the calls, all the emails. We did it all. Yeah. There were a few big names that you'll notice aren't in the film just for scheduling. They just couldn't do it. And in one celebrity, I won't name names, um, we really, 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 really wanted him. And he couldn't do it. And uh, we finally said, John, will you make that call? You know, you promised a year ago that you would do it. And he said, nah, 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 I'm not going to do that. If he doesn't want to be in it, he doesn't want to be in it. And it was just like, you know, that says a lot about John. He was very prideful and he didn't want to, you know, beg anyone to be in his movie. And um, we had, you know, we had to do it all on our own. And, and it was, you know, we impressed him. Yeah, but that's impressive as an independent filmmaker. I mean, you're able to reach out to top talents and convince them to be in the film. I mean, that's a skill in and of itself. Yeah, but I don't want to take get I don't want to take too much credit because the topic of the film is John Hamilton. Yeah. And you know, they were doing it for John. They did, they weren't doing it for me for sure. Um, but it led to great things that are coming up. But it was all about John from day one. I mean, we asked like the day we asked Sylvester Stallone, he said yes. He didn't make us wait or anything. Um, you know, we got Martin Scorsese on board, uh, just people wanted to be a part of this thing and Ralph Macchio, all, all these guys, um, because they owed it to John and you'll find out why Martin Scorsese owed it to John. Uh, very, very interesting, uh, story there that Scorsese hits on, um, that no one knows. Yeah. Now that's a connection I wasn't aware of either, but people have to watch the film to, uh, to learn all about it. Yeah. If you want to know how Martin Scorsese got his start. Watch my film. Uh, so I was curious, you know, in terms of, you know, conducting these interviews and figuring out what the whole story arc of the documentary would be. At what point did you start putting together, you know, maybe even an outline or sort of figuring out how you were going to structure certain elements of the interviews or other footage to understand what your story was? Well, you know, going into this a documentary, again, I was used to narrative film, and I, and I know, you know, you have a story to tell, and you choose your medium, and, or maybe sometimes the medium chooses you. In this case, a documentary spoke for itself. It's like, this is the format we need to do this in. So, um, you know, we outlined, we knew the story we wanted to tell. We wanted to really make a love letter to John Ableton and his, his underdog films. Um, you know, this is the guy, just like, uh, you know, Hitchcock was the master of suspense. I feel like John Allison's the king of the underdogs, the underdog film. So we knew what we were going for. Uh, one thing that changed, though, when we were outlining and, and putting it together was we were going to go in chronological order and try to hit all or almost all of his films. And when I presented the first assembly to John, it was, it was a 90-minute film. Right now it stands at 78 minutes. But John was like, after it was over, he was like, you know, look, you got to take about 30 minutes of this shit out. <laughs> you know, he's, we're like, what? Like, who tells you to take 30 minutes out of a movie about them? 
He goes, no one cares about this movie or that movie. This movie sucks. That sequel sucks. Just give them the good stuff. Don't, don't, don't focus on all these movies. And uh, we were like, well, John, if we do that, we can't go in you know, continuity-wise. We can't go in chronological order. Yeah. He was like, so? It's a documentary. It doesn't have to be. And I was like, wow, you're right. And so we eventually settled on a 78-minute film, and we took out just a lot of fat. But we didn't go into that knowing we were going to do that. That was definitely John, and he saved us. I can't imagine having a 90-minute dragging movie. Because think about it. You probably know his, his order of films. Like, what's after, say, Lean on Me? You've got nothing but bombs. Rocky Five and, like, you know, The Power of One and... Uh, the Van Damme movie that went straight to video like how do you end on that right so we decided we flipped it and we we ended on a high note and you'll see in the film um, so a lot of people they go into documentaries and they expect chronological order but the great John Avildsen said do you really have to yeah. and I think it works now well that's incredible that John he had no ego about you know a film about his life he's like you know take out that stuff we don't need it or be more creative in how you structure the film yeah, it was it was very impressive. I mean, and you and you're talking about a guy who used to cut his own films. He edited a lot of his own films, so he he understood editing and and story flow very well. Um, you know, John was fascinating. He was he could shoot, he could light, he could edit, he could direct. I mean, he could do it all. Uh, wasn't that great of an actor though, which you'll see in um in the documentary, and he always laughed about that, but. At what point did you uh, do his interview? So was that after that point where you had showed him the assembly, or was that before? John was a very stubborn guy, and uh, he wanted to go last, and um, so we shot him last. We shot him a year and a half after we started, and he had already seen several cuts. And but was what was great about that is is he got to, you know, fill in a lot of gaps and missing pieces so we shot him last and um and it was wonderful he gave a, a great interview i think it lasted like two or three hours and um i'm so thankful that we did at that time i can't imagine um shooting his interview first it just wouldn't have worked i don't think um but uh yeah he was he was very stubborn and he was very adamant i mean he gave me like probably 500 to a thousand notes during the whole process of this movie like we would sit there and now not to say he didn't step over me at all or um like direct over my shoulder none of that stuff he would just sit with we would sit together and we would go over cut after cut after cut after cut after cut and he would give notes and notes and notes and so sometimes he'd be watching the film like say hey, pause i have a note let's go through it oh yeah very detailed oh wow yeah. i mean we it would days and days and days but most of the time he was right now, when I fought him and he believed that I knew what I was talking about, he would let me win. So he's not like always right. He's just smart. And he didn't have final cut on the movie in any way. Or he didn't have final cut, but he was very savvy in the sense that he said, I won't give you my blessing. I won't sign off on it until you get it just right. <laughs> and man, up until, you know, like our world premiere, he, uh, he was very smart about that. But why wouldn't he be, you know? I mean, yeah. he, he wanted, it, uh, he wanted to, 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 to be a great testament to his legacy, and, and he, he was happy with it, and he helped us get there. And again, whenever I was right, he would let me be right. Uh, 
I only got on my hands and knees uh, one time to beg him, uh, <laughs> literally. Um, there do you was, think you would ever do that with a documentary again where you're sort of waiting for the main subject to sign off on it? No. <laughs> no, no. I'm doing uh, two documentaries right now simultaneously, and there, that is, we got everything up front, and, and including some of the interviews. Like, we're not waiting. And if you, you know, at this point, um, which we haven't hit on yet, but at the time of this podcast, John has now passed away. I believe he passed away last week, about a week and a half ago. And, uh, and uh, you know, get your subjects' d- interviews first. Because what if? You know, what if he would have passed away uh, and we didn't get his interview? Um, Jerry Weintraub, we got his last interview, and then he passed away. So although John was right to be last, he was also not a young man. And, um, you know, I'm glad we got his interview when we did. Yeah. As you mentioned before, this has been, what, three, four years working on this film. And now that John has passed away, how does that change your perspective on this incredible process that you've gone through? This long journey of getting this film completed. You know, uh, I was telling you off mic earlier, this is the first thing I've done since his death. And it's really, really bizarre to say that. I, you know, I'm on a lot of these podcast stuff which are great i was on yours before and it's fantastic happy to be here but man it's such a it's such a downer to have to like know that now i can't talk about john presently i have to talk about what john was and who he was and 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 it's really bizarre so i'm having a hard time with it but you know my perspective he get you know everyone's like when he passed away uh, and I don't want this obviously interview to be about John's passing. Let's, you know, we'll talk about his life, yeah. all the great things he did. But when he passed away, everyone was saying, "You gave him such a gift. You gave him such a gift. He he was right there with you till the end, and he loved it, and he was so proud, and he was at every screening, and he was a part of this thing. And you, you did this for his legacy, and you know he couldn't have gone out in a better way. And I'm going, hey, he gave me a gift. He gave my team a gift." My perspective has completely changed. Not only did we do this thing, we absorbed John Avildsen's life for three years. I mean, what he did for me and my team and my career is just, I will always, always be thankful for him, to him. He knew I was thankful. I mean, my career's skyrocketed. I'm getting more you know, projects now. And, and just the knowledge he gave, what saddens me is I didn't get to tell him goodbye. I told him thank you all the time. And I, and I didn't get to tell him goodbye. And that's what is really sad. But as far as, again, his perspective, man, it's kind of like all a dream. Like, we're here, we're about to release this film, and John's not here. But it's like, you know, his legacy is forever cemented now um, in this documentary and in his work. So we're just very, you know, it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. Yeah. And it's such an opportunity for people to rediscover his work and see even the films beyond Rocky and the Karate Kid. I mean, Save the Tiger, I think, is a masterpiece. It's an incredible movie. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I harp a lot on Rocky and the Karate Kid because I just love them. Lean but, On Me, that's another wonderful yeah, movie. Yeah, Lean On Me, Neighbors. I mean, the guy directed Marlon Brando and George C. Scott in the same movie, The Formula. Um, I mean, he worked with everyone. He discovered Susan Sarandon and Joe and Peter Boyle gave, you know, he made his career in Joe. Save the Tiger, like you said, is a masterpiece. I mean, I can watch Save the Tiger every day. 
if I really wanted to and not get bored, learn something new. Um, just, I mean, he worked with Morgan Freeman twice. Uh, he just, he has, his catalog of films is just so, it's eclectic. And let's be real, he made as many hits as he made misses. I mean, he has some bad movies. <laughs> and uh, Which ones would you say that, or maybe even John was willing to admit, were not as good as they could have been? Well, without hurting any of the fans or the people that made these movies and, and whatnot, but, you know, he Karate Kid 3, he didn't, he didn't even want to, like, shake a stick at. He was just like, <laughs> you know, he, he would say all the time, terrible film. It's just terrible. And it is, but it's fun. You know, we all grew up watching it, and it's I love watching it. Um, you know, uh, A Night in Heaven um, from 1983. Uh, Which I'm still trying to find. Such a I have it. Movie I'll, I'll loan it to you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been, it's nowhere. You can't get it on demand anywhere or DVD. I, it's, I found it on DVD, like, an import. I'll, okay. I'll loan it to you. Oh, awesome. So anyone out there, uh, Night in Heaven <laughs> fans, you can find it. Um, I love it. It's fun. See, I love all of his bad movies. Um, and some of, some of them aren't bad. They just didn't hit. You know, like, for example, one of his best movies that he ever did was Happy New Year from 1987 with Peter Falk and, uh, and uh, Charles Durning. It's produced by Jerry Weintraub. Actually, Jerry's on record saying out of the four films I did with John, that's my favorite film. Wow. What Not, is that film about? Uh, it's a heist movie. It, it's, it's like a, it, it feels like a classic like 50s and 60s kind of caper film. But uh, it, it takes place in West Palm Beach, Florida, and it's these old uh, crooks that they're wanting to pull a heist. And, uh, and they, they pull it off. And, of course, I don't want to give away the ending if they got away or didn't get away. But it's so charming. That's the key word with John. He would always talk about charm. Keep your characters charming. Keep your films charming. He always says, you know, the five minutes into reading the Rocky script, I was charmed that this guy is talking to these turtles named Cuff and Link. Of course I wanted to do this movie. Mr. Miyagi was so charming. So Happy New Year is a charming film, um, which I got on iTunes. Like, you can find it. His whole catalog pretty much is out there. You just have to really dig deep. And, um, and they're there. And uh, we don't, unfortunately, get to hit on all of his films again, you know, once again. Uh, which I would have loved to, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah, but I think it's really about the impact that John had on the culture and a lot of you know the films that hit, they hit really hard. I mean, you know, there's still Rocky films being made today with the Creed franchise starting up. Yeah, I mean, the guy literally, he's like a silent hero. I mean, the things that he did, uh, you know, the impact that he left that's what we're, it, again, our documentaries, it's not really a critical analysis. Let's just be real. It's a love letter. It's a love letter to a guy who stayed in the shadows, stayed behind the camera, and made some of the most riveting, amazing, Hollywood-esque, you know, underdog films there is. And, and what he did technically, like you'll, you'll learn, for example, why in Rocky, and I, again, not to keep talking about Rocky and the Karate Kid, but why in Rocky the letters, the title Rocky scrolls across the screen, you'll learn that in the film, why he chose to do that. And, and that's been copied to death. A gazillion <laughs> times. Uh, you'll, you'll learn a lot of the choices he made. And, and he's also, he does talk about the, the downfall and like how his career didn't take off in certain spots and mistakes he made and, uh, you know, why he, you know, he, why he didn't do Rocky too. 
uh, when he should have. And of course, he learned his mistake on Karate Kid 2 and decided to do that. And you learn all these things. Um, and you don't just hear it from John. You hear it from everyone that worked with him. And uh, the impact he had on cinema and pop culture is just immense. Yeah, and, and people should remember also Rocky made Sylvester Stallone a movie star that launched his career. Absolutely. I mean, one thing that 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 uh, John really loved about Sly is he's he was a hungry unknown, and John was like, "What better guy to work with than a guy that's actually going to listen to you?" And uh, you know, you'll learn a lot. You'll hear it from Sly himself. A lot of things. How he feels about John Abelson and and that whole experience. I mean, it's all in this documentary. Um, it's all there, and uh, you know, I mean, to have all these, to have Sylvester Stallone and Ralph Macchio, uh, the two ultimate underdogs in this film, is pretty pretty awesome. I think. As a as a filmmaker, you know, selling a documentary, people say now, you know, documentaries. There's more audience for documentaries now than ever before. Do you find that to be the case? Was it, you know, was it uh, easy or was it difficult to sell the film and to get it out into the world? You know, it, people, yeah, people are craving in intellectual pieces. You know, not all of us want to go see CGI, explosion, big budget, you know, superhero films. A lot of us get on Netflix, we get on Amazon, we get on, you know, HBO and we watch documentaries. And so... There's a definite market for it. It it hasn't been a hard sell. First of all, we didn't make a documentary about like earthworms or anything, you know, or like how to build a chair, which there's nothing wrong with those documentaries. Yeah. We did something that was very, um, you know, pop culture and, and marketable. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of films like this out there that, you know, hey, let's take our hero from childhood and make a documentary about him. So it's not like we're anything quote-unquote special we are different I think in the in the way that we handled this uh, we didn't want to do like a boring and I'm not knocking other documentaries at all I absorb these documentaries all the time I love documentaries but we didn't want to do some boring like you know you know what's coming documentary where it's like hey let's just follow John Ableton around in his daily life well that's boring you know we wanted to jump in there and say look you love these films you need to know who made them and uh, it was kind of an easy sell in that sense. You know, we're coming out August 1st and, um, you know, selling it hasn't been, been the issue. It was just getting it together and making John happy. Um, uh, that, was, that was the issue. Yeah. Well, it's incredible because now people can look back and really have an appreciation for John's work in a way they, they you know, didn't exist before. You know, as you were mentioning, you know, you would see the name John G. Avildsen on these films and it didn't have the same impact as someone like Steven Spielberg at the time, which was unfortunate. Yeah, it's like, you know, again, going back to what John was saying about why he wasn't a household name or anything. He said, uh, you know, and I don't think we actually had this in the in the documentary, but one of his lines would always be, you know, I just didn't waste money on a publicist. Uh, I probably should have. It was a mistake. But I did spend a little money on a publicist once and I ended up getting uh, my name and face on like a magazine on an, on an airplane. <laughs> and that was about it. And I realized all of that for that, no, I'm not going to waste that money. But, you know, he probably should have. Because, uh, look, I mean, we know Oliver Stone. We know, you know, David Fincher. We know all these, we know all these guys that make yeah. these quality Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese. For, yeah. we, know, we know all of them. 
You know, and people would say, well, actually, you don't know the director a lot. So it, this isn't uncommon that we don't know who the director is. I beg to differ. I mean, these giant movies like this, we do know their names, except John Appleton. That always bothered me. Yeah. It always bothered me. It's not like he's just some, like, direct-to-video director or, like, this guy that just makes paycheck movies and, you know... You really don't know who he is, but he's making you know two hundred million dollar movies that everyone goes to see. I'm, these are impactful, humanistic, beautiful stories. I mean, these they're they're like Casablanca, you know. They're like uh, they're they're like Citizen Kane. They're like these movies that will stick with us, and we need to know his name. And yeah, you're right. With this documentary, I feel like now you will, and. Um, you know, you'll learn something as well. And, and one thing that we wanted to do in this documentary is, is get younger audiences away from the big budget green screen superhero movies and learn something from this documentary that you can make these human interest stories and you can do them well and you can make them charming and you can also make them riveting and, and, and marketable. Yeah. And uh, if you I mean, really these, these films that were, you know, if you look at Rocky, it's a really intimate film. The same with The Karate Kid. I mean, today you can't even imagine those being big studio films. But at the time, those were what the studios were making. And they were hugely successful financially, critically. They made an impact on the culture. And low budget. Yeah. And they made, you know, a gazillion dollars in the, at the box office. Um, you know, Rocky was shot for less than a million and made a hundred million. Uh, Karate Kid... I, I can't remember exactly what it was, like nine or twelve million, something like that, and it went on to make a hundred million. So I mean, it's just, and and there's just this little guy behind the camera who was very modest, huge ego though. I don't want to say that John didn't have an ego. He had an ego in the sense of he was proud, you know, but he was modest in the sense that he didn't take the fanfare. He won the Oscar, and you know, he didn't uh, he didn't get his name in print anymore, and. You know, we're hoping to change that now. And now that he's not here with us anymore, I think he would be tickled. I think it would be when this movie comes out and people start, you know, buying it and renting it and talking about it. I think he'll he would have a genuine smile on his face because it was all about the work to him. It was all about the movies, and he never shied away from talking to his fans ever. He told the same stories over and over and over again. And never got tired of it because he knew that he did something special that he gave to us all. And um, and I love it. I love talking to like, you know, like these like hipster guys that are like, well, I don't like Rocky and the Karate Kid. I'm actually more of a... And they'll say some weird movie that he did that no one knows about. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he has those fans too that don't like his Hollywood big budget movie. Or not big budget, but these big... Underdog, they like these little small films he did in like the 60s and 70s, and, and that's great too. And this film is for everyone. This documentary is for everyone. Yeah, and what's interesting too is uh, maybe we talked about this in the last interview, but I mean, you even talk to people who uh, may have not even had a, a good working relationship with them, but yet still respected them. Like, for example, Burt Reynolds, who's been on the record saying, you know, they clashed a lot. But a lot of that came out of creativity and just wanting to make the movie as good as it could be. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Bert and, and John, they just didn't get along, just point blank. Um, they're just two different eggs from, the, a, from a completely different basket, you know. And, uh, 
yeah, Bert signed on. It was so cool. We we flew to Bert Reynolds' house in Florida, and uh, he was such a gentleman. I mean, it was awesome. It was it was awesome to interview Bert Reynolds. Now, was that surprising? Uh, you know, because you probably knew going in that they didn't have a good relationship, but he was still enthusiastic about doing an interview. Absolutely. I mean, when he said yes, we we're like, what? So then we thought, <laughs> oh wait, is he just going to bash him? And you know, the thing is, is he said, you know, like I thought he was an arrogant son of a bitch, but I have a lot of respect for him. And then you go, yes, like what a true pro Burt Reynolds is. Yeah. The, the fact that it's like, look, I don't like you, but I respect you and I'm going to talk about you because you changed the world. And I know that still want to punch you in the face, <laughs> but what you did, you, I, I respect you for. And John felt the same way. And and off camera, not excuse me, not off camera, just not in the film, because uh, it just didn't fit. But Bert, I have him on camera saying, I threw him a question. I said, uh, you know, what if John? What if you saw John again? What would it be like? And he goes, Is he here? I was like, No, no, no he's not here. He's like, Oh, okay. He goes, Well, if I saw John again, it would be nice. Actually, I would like that. I think everything would be great. And you're like, Yes. You know, so like I, I call John and I'm like, John, I mean, Bert said these nice things about you. And John's like, oh, well, I feel the same way. And you realize that, man, people get older, they soften up and they realize we were just two young, cocky hotheads back in the 70s. And they just had this respect for each other. And I just thought that was fantastic. You know, yeah. one thing that this documentary got to do is bring people back together, you know, and uh, Talia Shire, who is just so adorable and loves John and John loves her got to talk to her and, 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 you know, she was like, you know, we live probably three miles away from each other and never see each other. But this documentary brought them back, you know, and, and it was so cool. It'd be like, you know, this person and that person, they're like, Oh, give me John's number. And then they would call and talk. Like I remember Carl Weathers was like, what's John's number? And he called John and it's like, wow, like our team, we're doing this. We're putting people back in touch with John. And it was just incredible, incredible. Yeah, that's what people don't really, you know, you work on a movie and then people are off to the next movie. So not everybody stays in touch. So it's, you know, great that everybody was able to reconnect like that, especially, you know, toward the end of John's life. Absolutely. I mean, and they were showing up at screenings and uh, he just, he, you know, he had this, he was just revitalized. And, and so were the people that he, he worked with. I mean, they were, I don't want to say people were coming out of the woodwork. That is not the expression I should be saying. But what I mean is they were coming out of the past and coming together for John and it was just absolutely amazing and uh, you know like it was so cool at our world premiere we world premiered in uh, Santa Barbara at the Santa Barbara Film Festival back in February and like you know Ralph Macchio flew out from New York for it and it was just like this amazing experience you know that was actually the last time I saw John was at the really? world premiere and he was just so happy and everything was just it was just, and he was happy with the film and oh, enthusiastic yeah. to be there. And Absolutely. John, whatever you needed, whatever you needed, he would give. Give, 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 give. And, uh, you know, like what a way for us to remember him is like that was our last time we saw him, you know. And, uh, again, I would have loved to have told him goodbye, but uh, I have that memory of him, you know. And it was it was great. And Ralph was there and he was our special guest and it was just, it was incredible. And, you know, so I urge people to, you know, obviously I'm pushing a product here and I'm, I'm like, Hey, go buy our movie August 1st, August 1st. 
Um, you know, but you know what? Just I don't care if you borrow it from your friend or something. Just watch it. Just have an appreciation for this man because um, you know his films. Now just get to know him a little bit. Yeah. Well, I noticed, uh, is it Adam Carolla's company that's yeah. distributing the film? Yeah, Adam Carolla. Yeah. Uh, People don't realize, but he's directed a number of documentaries. He did a great one on Paul Newman, I think, last year or the year before. Yeah, yeah. He just, he's a, his company, Chassis Media, is just a great uh, production company. Um, he and his partner, Nate Adams, they, uh, they do these wonderful documentaries, um, usually about racing. Um, again, like you said, the Paul Newman one, which, which was fantastic. Uh, yeah, we teamed up with them, and um, and they love it, and they're our they're our uh, distributor, and we're um, just gearing up to take over the world with this thing, you know. And I mean, if you would have told me I'd be partnering up with Adam Carolla, I would have been like, what? Like, are you? And it's just amazing, you know. Yeah. Um, people really believe in this film, and um, you know, we just worked on it so hard, and you know, it it's it's uh it's just a testament to a man that. Um, that meant a lot to me and to a lot of people, you know. Uh, again, it's a love letter. I noticed, too, that you have uh, two other documentaries that you're working on. One is called Rocky, I think, 40 Years of a Classic, if I'm getting the title yeah, right. Yeah, 40 Years of Rocky. 40 Years of the Rocky. The Birth of a Classic. So what what is that film uh, like in terms of chronicling Rocky? Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, how, <laughs> it's interesting how that came about, but... Uh, it's a different type of documentary than we've seen on, on there's a gazillion Rocky documentaries, but that came to be uh, from Sylvester Stallone. He loved King of the Underdogs so much that uh, he gave us this idea to do this Rocky film. And oh, that's so he spearheaded the project originally, uh, Sylvester. It, then yeah, he wow. pitched it to uh, my partner and I, my producing partner. Um, we went over to his house to show him King of the Underdogs, and he loved it. And he was just, you know, we were sitting there like spitballing and, and he's just like, this is incredible. What's happening? I'm in Sylvester's house and he likes King of the Underdogs. And now he's saying, here, let's do another film together. And so that's how 40 Years of Rocky came to be. Now we're past the 40th anniversary. So, uh, but really it's kind of like four decades of this amazing film. And, and what we want to do with it is it's really highlighting John Appleton's behind the scenes footage. You know, it's not a, a typical documentary where we go and like we just talk about. It, it's all been done before with Rocky. What we're trying to do here is an intimate film showing the birth of this classic, you know. And from all of this footage that John Alton opened up to us. Um, this is all behind the scenes footage. Behind the scenes during footage. The making of the film. Wow. Not, and not just rehearsal footage and on the set, but home movies of John and Sly together parties and like all this just they were like a family and uh that's what we we're going to do with that one and uh you know we're, we're making that film right now and then uh we have another film that sly is a part of as well i mean again i'm sitting here like going oh my god i did three documentaries <laughs> in a row with sylvester sloan it's crazy uh called stallone frank that is uh, it's about frank stallone sly's brother he's grammy and golden globe nominated singer actor Musician, you name it, he's done it all, and uh, you know it's another underdog piece that we're that we're doing um, on Frank, and we're shooting that now. So all of these two documentaries came from King of the Underdogs. I mean, I'm I, I see myself as a filmmaker, not a documentarian, but as I always say, you know, I didn't really choose the medium; the medium chose me. So because it's interesting how you know ideas come about because 
you know, as a director, as a filmmaker, you know, this sort of happened organically. You, you knew John, you came up with this idea, and now you're making other documentaries, and, you know, it all kind of branched from there. So it's just, you know, a testament sort of the, you know, you never know where ideas are going to come from, and you always have to be open in a sense. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't know I was going to make this documentary on John. I wanted to, him to direct one of my scripts, and then all of a sudden, him turning me down turned into the better option, which is, you know, making this movie about him. And then from that, I uh, got in with the Stallones, and now I'm doing these documentaries, and it's just like, what's next? You know, maybe one day I will do a documentary on earthworms or how to build a chair. <laughs> but uh, it, it's just insane. It's, it's also led to some narrative projects that we have coming up, you know, um, but uh, yeah, it all goes back to King of the Underdogs and, and John Avildsen just being so nice and just saying, hey, you know, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Uh, sort of to close out, I was curious if there's maybe, you know, one thing, I know it's probably difficult, but something that you took from John about filmmaking that really sticks with you that maybe carries over into these other two documentaries that you're making. Uh, you know, ha to have an opinion. To have an opinion and stick by it. Uh, John, probably to a fault, was very opinionated and stern and knew what he wanted, even if he was wrong. And there's no self-doubt with John. You know, he taught me that. Don't doubt yourself. Have an opinion, stick to it. You might be wrong, but, you know... There's a lot of examples in his films what made them the way they are because he wasn't wrong and he stuck to his opinion. But there's also some films that he that are terrible that he did because he stuck to his opinion. I don't want to make terrible films, but I learned from John and I'm carrying it over into these documentaries. Just I have an opinion. I have a vision. I hate using that word vision because it sounds so pretentious when a director's like, oh, my vision, my vision, my vision. But it actually, you do have a vision. Um, stick with it and um, but at the same time be malleable you know you don't have all the right answers yeah, I guess the hardest part really about filmmaking is you know as a director how do you know when you're right and how do you know when you're wrong is it really a, is it really possible to be either right or wrong gut instinct yeah I think just believe in it know it um, you know I could give examples all day long about John when he believed in something like he fought and you'll learn in this documentary he fought to have you know, one final shot of Mr. Miyagi at the end of The Karate Kid um, because he believed in it. He knew that was the answer. He fought to change the ending of Rocky because he knew it needs to be this way. And, uh, you know, he, he, he told Jack Lemmon, I'll do your movie, Save the Tiger, but I don't want to see you in it. Meaning, I don't want to see Jack Lemmon. I want to see the character Harry Stoner. And if you can give me that, then I'll do your movie. And Jack did, and he won the Oscar for it. Yeah. So have an opinion. And that was one of John's very first films, and he went up to a movie star like Jack Lemmon and said, hey, you know, this is the way I see it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine <laughs> getting a phone call from Jack Lemmon saying, hey, I saw Joe, and I really liked it. I want you to do this movie. And you have the balls to say, well, yeah, I don't want to see any Jack Lemmon characteristics in it. I don't want to see any Jack Lemmon characteristics in it. And uh, if you can give me that, I'll do it. He had a vision. He had an opinion. And I like to think that, uh, you know, maybe I can carry that on with, with 
in myself and with my films. And we'll see what happens. I hope I make some good ones. We'll see. How can everybody check out John G. Avildsen, King of the Underdogs? You can buy, rent, whatever you want to do with John G. Avildsen, King of the Underdogs. Uh, August 1st uh, on digital download, video on demand, some streaming services, Blu-ray, DVD. It's out there. Um, you know, iTunes, Amazon, like all of those platforms, Google Play, like it's, it's out there. Um, and we'd love for everyone to just kind of, you know, pick up their copy. Tell your friends. I mean, tell your, your film buffs. I mean, this is something that I feel like everyone should see, and especially in the film ministry. And uh, it's out there. It's out there. So uh, click of a button. It could be yours. Our Twitter and Instagram handle is at uh, JGA Underdog. And then, uh, of course, you can find us on Facebook. Just type us in, and, and we're there. And um, just keep up to date with the film. We've we've done the festival circuit. Now we're we're released and we're, you know, ready to uh, get this movie out to the masses. And it's really it's up to the fans and it's up to word of mouth and people to really push this movie forward. So um, I don't guess I'm great at pushing a product, but uh, yeah, click that button, buy buy my movie. <laughs> awesome. Well, congratulations on the film. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you, and thanks for having me back on uh, for a second time. This has been great. Thanks for listening to the Road to Cinema podcast. John G. Avildsen, King of the Underdogs, is now available to rent or buy on iTunes, Amazon, and other video-on-demand platforms, as well as on DVD and Blu-ray. We'll see you next time.